Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we've gathered together to worship you. Part of our worship, we understand, is to listen to what you might say to us about our lives through the words written in Holy Scripture as we study this incredible man named Paul whom you've used in all of our lives. We pray that we would understand a bit more from his example, his words, and this encounter that he has with this governor. We ask you, Lord, to take control of this service. We believe you already have, but we pray you'd control now the way we would listen to what we're about to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard about a family that moved to a new town, and the local community church pastor invited the family to church. Well, the husband said, As soon as I get my life straightened out, those were his words, as soon as I get my life straightened out, I'll be there. Well, months went by and he never showed up, so the pastor saw him again and invited him to church. He said, I haven't gotten my life straightened out yet, pastor, but as soon as I do, I'll be in church. That was his excuse. A month later, the man died. And his widow asked if they could hold the funeral services at the church. The pastor agreed. As they were getting ready for the funeral, one of the church members said, Was this man a believer in Christ, a Christian? The pastor said, Well, he's never attended here. Nobody that I know has heard him give a public profession of faith in Christ, so I don't know. But I do know this. He's a man of his word. He promised to come to church as soon as his life got straightened out. And here he is in the casket, straightened out. He's come to church. What a shame, huh? to get straightened out by rigor mortis before you get straightened out by righteousness. But that is the often repeated story of so many lives, young, middle-aged, and old, who put off the most important decision of their lives, the deadly art of procrastination. Now, we all know about procrastination, and sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's not. I mean, if you think about the procrastination of, I'll clean out the garage someday, that, that is not huge in terms of eternity. I know it might be for peace in your own home this week. But in the scheme of eternity, it's not a big deal. But when it comes to putting off the most important spiritual decision ever, it's a huge deal. One honest poet wrote, Procrastination is my sin. It brings me nothing but sorrow. I know that I should stop it. In fact, I will tomorrow. Now we're in Acts 24, and let me fill in the gaps. Paul was warned, remember, not to go to Jerusalem. He didn't listen to his advice. He decided, I'm going. And he goes, and there he is in the temple, worshiping, and he gets arrested. False charges are brought against him. He goes from being held by... Jewish captors to being taken by the Roman government in Jerusalem. While he's there in the Antonia Fortress, headquarters of the Roman government in Jerusalem, 40 
assassins vow a vow not to eat or drink anything till they kill Paul. The Roman government gets wind of it, and he is whisked off to Caesarea with 470 armed soldiers. A whole contingent goes and takes him to Caesarea. There in Caesarea, he spends two years, and he goes through three trials before two governors, Felix and Festus, and then finally King Agrippa himself. So chapters 22 through 26 cover a two-year period where Paul goes to Jerusalem, is arrested, and he's taken to Caesarea where he spends the rest of the time in captivity. What we're going to look at today are really two people involved facing off each other. One is a persecutor turned preacher, that's Paul, against a procurator turned procrastinator, that's Felix. Let's get the gist of the story in verse 10 onward in Acts 24. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they have had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they have found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, 
he sent for him more often and conversed with him. How deadly is is procrastination? How important is it that we make a choice about spiritual things the very moment they're revealed to us? Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, If you have missed Christ just by the ticking of the clock, you have missed Christ forever. Now here's the flow of the story that we just read. It's a courtroom scene. Paul gives an explanation for his behavior. The explanation turns into a fascination for Felix and Drusilla. And so they send for him, not once, but a few times, to listen to what he has to say. But the fascination quickly turns to trepidation. They're fearful because of what Paul tells them. And then the story doesn't end happily ever after. It ends on a sad note, a sorry note, with procrastination. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. And history records there was never that time. So let's consider some of these things. Let's go back to the explanation, and we won't read it all over again, but let's consider a couple of things, and let me give you the setting quickly. Paul the Apostle is now a prisoner. At first, he's in chains. In this courtroom are a group of Jews from Jerusalem. They've hired uh, a prosecuting attorney by the name of Tertullus. Now, all this is mentioned in the first part of the chapter. Tertullus has a Roman name. Presumably he understood Roman law. And he stood there before the governor, Felix, and gave false, brought false accusations against Paul. And there's a whole group of Pharisees and Sadducees and the high priest from Jerusalem all nodding, putting pressure on the governor to put Paul away. Then it's time for Paul. And he stands up. No defense attorney. No legal team. Just a man and his God. Just a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Martin Luther once said, With God, one is a majority. And Paul stands up, not in fear, but in confidence. Not going, I should have listened to those people. They told me not to go to Jerusalem. Uh Uh-uh. This was a carpe diem moment. He sees the opportunity to bring a witness. And he gives his explanation to Felix. Here's the scoop, Felix. By the way, are you named after a cat? No, he didn't say that. But he said, Felix, you're the governor. Let me tell you the scoop. I went to Jerusalem to worship God. And he gives him the lowdown, but notice what he says in verse 14. Now, oh, wrong one. Verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect... So I worship the God of my fathers. Now get this. Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Can you say that? Do you believe everything in the pages of this book? You believe the creation story? You believe that bit about a flood What about those Passover plagues or that story of Jonah? Do you believe all things that are written in the Law and the Prophets? Paul said that he did. In fact, Paul simply believed about the Bible 
what his Savior believed about the Bible. Jesus once said, Not one jot or one tittle will by any means pass from the law till everything is fulfilled. Paul said, I believe all things that are written in it. So I ask you, do you share the same view as the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul the Apostle? There's a lot of folks I meet that have, I can only call it a Dalmatian theology. They believe the Bible is inspired in spots. Oh, I like that story, and I like that story. and All those red letters, those are cool. I hold to those, but I don't believe it all. I don't buy it. You see, I have a problem with anyone who says, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, when that very Jesus that you say you follow believes all things in the Old Testament, all those things are true, and he would know he's God in human flesh. When that person themselves, they don't hold to it. Paul said, I believe it all. It's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Something else to notice in his explanation. Twice he mentions the resurrection. Once in verse 15 and once in verse 21. Now he knew that the crowd was divided. You have Pharisees who hold to a resurrection. Sadducees who do not believe in a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. (laughs) They had no hope after this life. And Paul knew that was his audience. But Paul believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what I want you to understand is that Paul's explanation was based upon the Bible's inspiration and Jesus' resurrection. And he explains that with great confidence. Several years ago, a a British attorney, an unbeliever by the name of Frank Morrison, set out to overturn Christianity. A lot of people have tried that. And he discovered that there are two issues that must be dealt with if you're going to overturn Christianity. Number one, the resurrection of Christ. Number two, he said, the conversion of this Jewish rabbi, Saul of Tarsus. So Frank Morrison culled together evidence to do exactly that. And in the process, in looking at the evidence, he got saved. He was converted himself. But here's the point I'd like to make. Just as Paul was ready to give an explanation in any situation, so should we. This is what I mean. We ought to actually prepare what we're going to say to somebody. If we're in line at the grocery store, we talk to a neighbor, we're at school, we're at the office, a friend, a phone call. We never know when the opportunity might avail itself. And so we should think through, what am I going to say? As Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 3, if you're asked about your Christian hope, you should always be ready to explain it. I've always appreciated that about Dr. Billy Graham and his son Franklin, who's now taken over his organization. Any opportunity they get, they don't care who's in the crowd, they don't care if all the presidents are there, they'll put that gospel front and center. It's interesting at this library dedication as Jimmy Carter stood up and then Bill Clinton stood up and then President Bush Sr. stood up and they all said nice things about Billy Graham. Then Billy stood up and the first thing out of his mouth he said, I feel like I've been attending my own funeral. It's a classic moment. And then he went on to say, it's not about me, it's about the message of the gospel. 
And Franklin stood up and always made make sure that they know Jesus Christ came from heaven and died for your sins on the cross and rose from the dead and He'll wash you of your sins. Always ready to give an answer. Well, the explanation brings a curiosity, a fascination. Verse 22. When Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I'll make a decision on your case. So he commanded that the centurion, key Paul, let him have liberty, told him not to forbid, forbid any of his friends to provide or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now you'll notice something. You'll notice in the 22nd verse that the writer Luke credits Felix with having a more accurate knowledge of the way. That's what Christians were called 2,000 years ago. Not Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, Calvaryites. They were simply the way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Anyone who followed Christ were of this group called the way. Felix had knowledge of the gospel. And his knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ piques his curiosity, his fascination. So he thinks, I want to hear this guy a little more. And he calls for him. Let me give you the background of this guy, Felix. His name, his full name was Antonius Felix. He was once a slave that was set free by the emperor Claudius. He and his brother Marcus. Antonius and Marcus, both slaves, both given freedom by Caesar. His brother Marcus was favored by the Roman court, and it was his brother that landed him this job as governor. It wasn't because he was good. He wasn't. He was a lousy governor, truth be told. But his brother got him the job, and when Antonius became governor of Judea, he gave himself the name Felix. Not named after the cartoon character Felix the Cat, of course. The name means happy like the Spanish word, feliz. He called himself happy, which didn't fit him because he was a miserable tyrant. The Roman historian Tacitus says of him, he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king in the spirit of a slave. He would hire assassins to kill anybody that disagreed with him. Oh, here's another important fact, maybe the most important fact. He was the governor of Judea just after Pontius Pilate. He would have been briefed all of what happened during Pontius Pilate's rule. So he would have known about the death of Christ, the resurrection reports of Christ, and this new rapidly growing movement. He had indeed a more accurate knowledge of the way. Okay, that's Felix. Also mentioned here is a girl by the name of Drusilla. Listen to her story. She was the youngest daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. She was considered one of the most beautiful women in the Roman Empire. First married when she was 16 years of age. When Felix met her, married to a Syrian king, he lured her away from her husband. She dumped him and married Felix. 
Now it says she's Jewish here. We read that right here in the text. Drusilla who is Jewish. So she had some messianic hope. But talk about a conflicted individual. I mean, here's her background. Her great-grandfather, Herod the Great, was the guy who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. Her great-uncle was the guy who cut off John the Baptist's head. And her own father, Herod Agrippa I, was the guy who killed James and imprisoned Peter. And yet she's Jewish, with some messianic hope, married to this guy who is now the procurator of Judea. So both of them have an interest, if not a fascination, in this Paul guy. They've heard reports. And probably it's, it's simply the curiosity of what kind of a guy would leave his profession as a notable rabbi in Israel and be willing to die for this message of Christ? Well, let's talk to him. It's like the story I heard of a man who went into a store and bought a bright, bright green shirt with big purple polka dots. He bought the shirt, took it home, and inside the pocket was a note from a girl with her address and name saying, would the one who buys the shirt please send me his picture? He thought, ah, oh, romance. He sent off the picture to the address to the girl, and back came an envelope and a note from the sewing machine operator at the factory the gal who wrote the note, and she simply said, thanks for the picture. I was just curious to see what kind of an idiot would buy a shirt like that. (laughs) Frankly, I think that's what Felix and Drusilla were wondering. What kind of an idiot would risk life and limb for this gospel message? Curiosity. But you know what? A lot of people have been led to Jesus Christ simply out of curiosity. They take a course in college. The Bible is literature. They start digging around historical facts. They start applying reason to it. One thing leads to another, and many of them come to Christ. I love the story in the New Testament where the disciples ask Jesus, this is early on, right after his baptism, Master, where are you staying? And Jesus says, Come and see. And they did. They became his disciples. Or, or the story where Philip says to Nathaniel, We have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. Or little Zacchaeus of Jericho who climbs up that tree to see Jesus because he was curious. Jesus stops at the tree and says, Come on down, buddy. We're going to eat lunch at your house. And he ends up becoming a follower of Christ. You know what? A lot of people I've watched over the years were curious. They get bothered by their co-worker who carries the Bible and loves Jesus. And they go, I'm just curious. I want to go to your church and find out what you're up to. Article in Albuquerque newspaper a few years ago said, What kind of a church rents a water park for public, public baptisms? Come and see. So, Paul gives an explanation. It produces a fascination in Felix and Drusilla. But the story quickly changes. Look at verse 25. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, 
and the judgment to come. Boy, Paul didn't waste any time, does he? He didn't say, oh, Drusilla, you look beautiful today. Love the dress. Black looks good on you. Very slimming. None of these introductory remarks. He just reasons. By the way, Christianity is very reasonable. And we read this word often in the New Testament where he reasoned with them in the synagogue. Here he reasons with them about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Felix, look at this, Felix was afraid. Now, if you have a King James Bible, you know, the old King Jimmy, it says, Felix trembled. The Amplified Bible renders it this way. He became alarmed and terrified. Okay, okay. What's wrong with this picture? This is laughable. What's wrong with this picture? It's a role reversal. Here you've got a prisoner in chains. He has nothing. He's standing below on the pavement. He's very confident. He's really ready to share his hope and trust and faith in Christ. He's not scared. There's no indication of that here. And you've got a guy on a raised platform, the governor of Judea, who commands Roman armies, and he's shaken like a leaf. He's afraid. He's terrified. Why? Because Paul speaks to him about three things. We're not told his message per se, but he talked to him about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Dwight L. Moody used to say, when you throw a stone at a pack of dogs, it's always the one that gets hit that does the yelping. This dog's a yelping. His heart gets hit. There's a conviction that forms within him. He becomes terrified, emotionally moved. Three things Paul touches on. I want you to consider them briefly. He speaks to Felix about righteousness. Simply means the quality or character of being right with God. Here's how to get right with God. I can only imagine the conversation. Well, Paul, Drusilla and I would like to hear a little more about your background. Really? Let me tell you how to get right with God. Let me tell you about what true righteousness is. I'm sure Paul included truths like 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone be in Christ, he's a brand new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. By the way, this kind of preaching is needed today, and here's why. I've discovered most Americans trust in their own righteousness. It's something like this. Here's most people's story. Well, I'm a good person. I do good things. I pay my taxes. I'm nice to people. I deserve to go to heaven because I'm good. It's that story in one form or another. It's interesting, meeting with David Berkowitz this last week and seeing a man broken and humbled and genuinely converted, and I have no doubt that I'll be with him forever in heaven. As I was talking to him, I was thinking of having conversations with unbelievers who considered themselves good. And what they would say if I were to tell them, you know what, David Berkowitz is going to heaven. What? What about all the good people who deserve to be in heaven? Don't good people go to heaven? 
It's a good question, actually. Because I would say on one hand, yes, only good people go to heaven. But what is your definition of good? Remember Jesus said to the rich young ruler when he said, Good master, what must we do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. Jesus challenged his definition of what goodness is. Goodness, according to Jesus, can only be applied to one being alone. That's God. Are you as good as God? Nobody is. Only good people go to heaven. Yeah, only those as good as God. And that's why man's righteousness isn't enough. You have to be given freely by faith in Christ through His shed blood. You have to be given the righteousness that comes from Christ alone. Paul told him about righteousness. Second, Paul told him about self-control, which means to restrain your passions. Why did Paul bring this up? Because he was speaking to a guy and a gal who were given over to their passions. I mean, this was Felix's third marriage, and he broke up a marriage to lure her to marry him. So it's an entire illicit relationship ruled by passion. And wouldn't you say Paul's treading on thin ice here? I can, again, imagine the conversation. Well, Paul, we've called you here because we're curious about you. Let me tell you, buddy, how to get right with God. Because your life, frankly, isn't ruled by God. You're ruled by your own passion and lust, not self-control. Let me ask you a question. How popular is that word today, or words, self-control? When is the last time you heard on the media the need for abstinence? Self-control, chastity, purity. Well, that's not popular. Especially when it comes to sexual issues. Oh, no, no, no. Let's talk about safe sex. You know what safe sex is? It's one man, one woman, one lifetime. And it's abstaining from it till you get there. That's not a popular message. And far less popular... Is it to name anything as sin, right? You know, even preachers don't even want to use the term anymore. Hey, don't, we don't use that anymore. We'll say hang up, issue, problem, but not sin. I say one of the best things you could do, loving, helpful things you can do, is to call sin, sin. What if there was poison on a shelf and you decided, that's too strong of a word. I'll put alternative substance on it. (laughs) So much nicer. You know what will happen? You'll kill people. That's what will happen. Righteousness. Self-control. And third, the judgment to come. Boy, he's not pulling any punches, is he? I can, again, only imagine the conversation. With all due respect, Felix, you're sitting on a throne right now judging me. One day you'll stand before God and you'll be waiting for His verdict on your life. There is a coming judgment. Paul preached it. Now, all of this brought a conviction. It says he was terrified or he trembled. Let me ask you this question. Was what Paul said wrong... Was it wrong for him to speak so pointedly about how to get right with God 
how to be controlled not by your lust and passion, but by God, and of the coming judgment if you fail to make the right choices. Was that wrong for Paul to do that? Some think so. I have an article, actually an advertisement, from, again, local Albuquerque newspaper a few years back, a new church advertising people to come, and this is what it said. You will meet friends and neighbors, not a bunch of religious fanatics. They might tell you where you can find a good babysitter or about a job opening they heard about, but they will not tell you how to live your life. They would say that Paul's message was wrong. Is it unloving to warn people about judgment? Is it unloving to warn people about hell? Because if you think it's unloving, you better think twice about following Christ. Because Jesus spoke about hell more than any single individual in all of the Bible. You know, I found that a lot of people who say they believe in God actually have a fifth gospel. You go, fifth gospel? I thought there was only four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I know that, but... A lot of people found it convenient to isolate all of their favorite little sayings of Jesus and compile them all into one little fifth gospel. They like what he said about loving your neighbor and doing the golden rule and those things. That's Jesus. Throwing out so much of what he said. Righteousness, self-control, judgment to come. And now you've got a governor shaking in his, I was going to say boots, his sandals. How does the story end? Verse 25, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid, and he answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. The New English Bible translates it, I'll call you when I get the chance. Ever heard those words? Any salespeople here this morning? You call in a client, uh, I'll call you. It usually means, I'm not interested. It's, it's a brush off. I know, you're thinking, yeah, but you know, don't be so hard on this Felix guy. I mean, he was, he was touched, he was moved emotionally. It says, he trembled. That's my point. So do all the demons. James says, you say you believe in God, great. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. You see, it's possible to be emotionally moved and shed a tear and then quickly harden your heart. And hardening of the heart is a lot more deadly than hardening of the arteries. You remember the Philippian jailer said to Paul one night, What must I do to be saved? Remember what Paul answered? We all know that verse. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But I have a follow-up question. What must I do to be lost? Answer, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just don't do anything at all. Just, just put it off and put it off. And, put, and say, someday, someday, when I get straightened out. Atheism has slain its thousands. But procrastination has slain its tens of thousands. I knew a young man. He was 24 years of age. I told him about Jesus, his love, his forgiveness, hope, heaven, new life. 
and about judgment to come. And he said, someday. Don't tell me about it now. He died in a motorcycle wreck. He was my own brother. I watched the effects of procrastination. It's not worth it. In the American Revolution, the commander of the British forces was playing cards one evening when a courier came with an urgent message written on a piece of paper. The commander took the message, folded it, didn't read it, put it in his pocket. He should have read it. The note said, General George Washington and his troops are crossing the Delaware River. But he had to finish the card game. He was ahead. That night he was straightened out. He lost his life. He lost the battle. How important is it to make a decision for Jesus Christ now, today, at this very moment? It's crucial. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And for many of you, there's no better time than right now. Let's all stand and we'll pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of a man named Paul ready to give an answer. And thank you for the warning to a man called Felix who said when he was having a convenient moment, he'd call for him again. But that moment never came. At least that's what we read. Lord, you've given us this moment, this time. We may have more times like this. We may never have an opportunity like this again. I pray, Lord, that you save some more. That you'd speak deeply and bring deep conviction. That would lead to a yielding of lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.